the San Bernardino County Sun, in an article dated December 11, 1938, described Tilly as, quote, a fat, swarthy housewife. The Chicago Tribune would write unfavorably that she, quote, had a greasy complexion, lumpy figure, growls instead of murmurs, and knows a crochet needle better than a lipstick, end quote. But, oh, how she could cook. Once upon a time, she was called pleasant, funny, and a good neighbor. It seems she lost all her patience and good humor after being married, because, as the San Bernardino County son also writes, quote, Apparently, any reason at all was enough to send Mrs. Klimek to the arsenic bottle. End quote. This is the story of Atlia Klimek. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. I need to start this episode with an apologetic side note. I profusely apologize to the entire Polish community and their descendants for the butchering of proper names that are used in this story. I tried to get advice on the proper pronunciation, but I make no promises in my competency. She was born Attilia Burek on October 22nd, 1877 in Poland. Her parents were Michaelina and Michael Burek. The Burek family had seven children and Tilly was the firstborn. When Tilly was only two years old, the Bureks were facing death if they stayed in their beloved Poland, or they had the opportunity of a new life if they crossed the ocean to America. The village they lived in, Sieno, was in direct line to being burned to the ground because of the protests and resistance against Prussia, Austria, and Russia's hostile attempt to vie for the land. They had heard that there was a safe place for Polish immigrants in a city called Chicago. Over 40,000 Polish immigrants would be removed from neighboring Germany, where they initially sought protection, to board a ship to America and find themselves in the Midwest. They called it Little Poland, since a few Polish residents set up something of an immigration agency for those arriving from Poland to help them settle in, learn the language, and be comforted by the taste, feel, and sounds of home. Not a lot is known about Tilly's childhood. She was the eldest, as I mentioned. Nearing the marrying age, Tilly had not found a husband on her own so she was ushered off to the local marriage broker in hopes that they would find a suitable mate for her. She came up with Joseph Mitkiewicz, and they would become man and wife in 1895. In 1896, their firstborn child was Joseph Charles, and then a sister, Theophila, in 1897. The marriage appeared to be a happy one, The couple was well-liked in the community. 
Tilly earned a reputation as a good neighbor and a good cook. As in every culture, the Polish ancestry has a certain belief in dark magic and wizardry and witches. They would call it Sheptuha. Often this magical word is used to describe women who seem to possess the gift of healing or premonition. It translates in English as a whisperer. This was considered a gift. Those who had shown that they possessed this unique talent were assumed to be chosen as healers and foreseers of the community. They were given the responsibility of praying or fasting over those who may be ill or trusted as far as their visions to be true. Well into 19 years of marriage, Tilly came to a neighbor with a startling confession. She had a dream. She said, a dream of the death of her husband. And when pushed for further details from the neighbor, Tilly would say it would happen in only three days. And to the shock and amazement, it did. The coroner pronounced his death due to heart failure. Atlia must be a Sheptuha. In January 1914, 37-year-old Tilly was a widower. Her children were practically grown and out of the house. Her son was already 18 and her daughter would be of marrying age soon after. Even though the death of her husband paid out a life insurance policy of around $1,000, which is well over $30,000 in today's currency, she would be alone for the first time in her life. On one particular evening, the neighbor would tell the story that she and Tilly were sitting on her fire escape, hoping to find a breeze to take away the squelching summer heat. They looked below and saw a dog sniffing the trash, looking for scraps to eat. Tilly made a show of shivering, telling her friend that she had just had a premonition that she saw that that dog was dead within a week. This, too, came to pass. Back in the early 1900s, it was not acceptable for women to be unmarried. The marriages then were not always based on affection, but rather as something of a team. The labors were specifically divided that it was difficult for one sex to live without the other, so sudden marriages were quite common. It was to no one's surprise that Tilly found herself a new husband in less than two months. On February 27, 1914, Tilly was alone no more. She married Joseph John Ruskowski. He has been known to go by both Joseph and John, but I'm going to go with John for clarity's sake. You'll soon find there's an abundance of Josephs in this story. On her very wedding night, in a panic, she confided in her cousin that she might have made a mistake for she had had a vision in which she saw her brand-new husband as a corpse. Poor John managed to hold on for a few months, but became terribly ill in early May, and true to her prediction, he died on May twentieth, 1914. Despite the pain and suffering the poor woman must be going through, she was able to find some comfort in the $1,200 he had left behind coupled with the $722 life insurance policy. Bless her heart. Tilly decided that, for whatever reason, she did not want to remain single, so she sought out the marriage broker. One name that came up 
It might take a bit of finagling, but that's the broker's job, essentially. Joseph, yes, another Joseph, Grantkowski was looking for a bride. He was very specific in saying he was searching for someone beautiful, even though he himself would not necessarily be described as handsome. And since we know that Tilly was never described as beautiful, the marriage broker had her work cut out for her. She fell back on the skills that Tilly was an amazing cook, and that she was worth quite a bit of money. Feeling safe that Tilly wouldn't be after him for his money, he agreed to the trial period of dating to see if they were indeed a tolerable match. Nothing helps speeds along the acquaintance period like a road trip. Joseph and Tilly made their way to Milwaukee, and sure enough, an argument or two transpired. Joseph had seen enough. He was quite sure that this was not the woman he wanted to marry. He would tell his sister upon their return that she threatened to accuse him of taking her across state lines for sexual activities. If you've listened to episode 17 of season 3, The Alamo Cult, we learned all about the Man Act. The Man Act was passed in order to put a stop to the rampant sex trafficking that was happening and it was passed in 1910. But Tilly decided to use it to her advantage in this particular situation. What else could he do? He had hoped that by the time they returned to Chicago, she would realize that they were not a match. But Tilly insisted that they were, and wanted to move forward with a marriage. He told her he did not want to marry her. He was clear, he was firm, and he was not going to waver in his decision. I'm not sure how she reacted at the time, but she was able to convince him to dine with her at least a few more times. And luckily, he liked to drink. And I'm not talking about lemonade. It just so happened that the chatter of prohibition was in full effect, and it just so happened that Tilly knew how to make some good old bathtub moonshine. When Joseph's sister Stella tried to defend her brother, An argument ensued between the two headstrong women. After a few days of cooling off, Tilly decided to apologize and offered her some homemade candies. Sadly, some days following, Stella found herself very ill. That blasted influenza. It seemed to attack both siblings, but poor Joseph wasn't able to rally and soon passed away perhaps because of his love for moonshine was a tad bit stronger than her love for sweets. You know, those vices can kill you. Hello everyone, it's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break, and this one highlights Lumi deodorant. But today, we are not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash. Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places, promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the body wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus, you help support an awesome podcast. 
Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you. Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. I'm going to entertain a bit of speculation in this episode, which I don't usually care for. I like to know the facts, but I can't find reasons why her cousins, when they were young, 15, 16, and 23, would at various times be put in Tilly's care. That leads me to the compulsion to make stuff up. So, as a quick summary, in 1914, Tilly had three men die around her. In 1912, a cousin, Stanley, which was under her care, died of pneumonia. A year later, another cousin, the sibling of the one last year, would also die. She was 23. And now, in 1915, she is looking after a third sibling from the same family, Helen, who has symptoms of influenza. So, since she is now recognized as a Sheptuha, does this mother hand over her ailing children hoping that the healing part of the gift will take precedence? Or did Tilly tell her aunt that her children were seen in a vision to die and she offered to let them pass under her care to save the mother additional anguish? Or was it some other reason? Maybe there were too many kids to take care of? Not enough money to feed everyone? And, I mean, Tilly had plenty. I don't know. But back to the facts, young 15-year-old Helen did indeed die while under the care of Otilia the Septuha. Tilly had only one true friend, her cousin Anila. Everyone called her Nellie, and she was two years younger than Tilly. This was the person I'd imagine that would sit across from Tilly at a small kitchen table, sharing coffee and gossiping about the neighbor's activities, cleaning tips and recipes, and perhaps the sudden decline in animals in the area. Nellie was married to Albert, and had been since 1893. She had given him 11 beautiful children, the last one a son being born in 1909. You can imagine her surprise and even disappointment from discovering that she was once again with child, or should I say children, because, as it turns out, this time there were twins. All that pressure plus her 13-year-old child, Lillian, had been sick. It was all just too much, I can hear her lamenting. It was decided that Lillian would come and stay with Aunt Tilly throughout the pregnancy. To put things back in our timeline, this is quote-unquote conversation-slash-decision was happening in 1913. The first Joseph was still alive and well at the time, and 23-year-old cousin had recently passed, so apparently uh, a bed was available. Lillian remained sickly for most of her time there, and then suddenly she began to decline. Tilly thought the worst was about to happen, but to her surprise, Nellie decided to bring Lillian back to her home. Lillian remained frail and unhealthy for the rest of her days. Nellie gave birth to the twins, Zofia and Benjamin, in May of 1914. 
Sadly, Zofia would die only three months later, and her brother Benjamin would follow a month after that. Infant deaths were most common during the 18th and 19th centuries and wouldn't taper off until the middle of the 20th century. So, while sad, no one thought anything of the tragedies. Sometimes tragedy can deeply connect people as they work through things. And 1914 was quite a roller coaster for the two cousins. While Tilly managed to stay single for a while, living off the insurance payoffs, poor Nellie seemed to pick up where she left off. All the foreshadowing is intended. In 1918, Nellie's husband, Albert, died suddenly. Not too long after, her son, John, became gravely ill, but would recover, with haunting memories of his feverish days. And not too long after, Nellie found herself newly married. She was now Mrs. Kulik. Ushering in the year 1920 would find Tilly almost out of money and no husbands to fall back on. So she entered, for the first time, into the workforce. The 1920s had opened up more jobs being offered to women with the industrialization age. There were jobs being offered to everyone, men, women, African Americans, and even children. Tilly signed up for a factory job. She would scandalously move to an apartment at 924 North Winchester with a man no one could remember other than that his name was Myers. It's it's not important. I mean, he disappeared not too long after. Probably just, you know, moved away, leaving everything behind, like some folks do. So began this new phase of her life, earning money, a new apartment, and it wouldn't take long for her to spot Frank Kupkisik. He was a widowed father of six and described as an easygoing and friendly man, and a man who knew what he wanted. He wasted no time. He pops the question, and five days later, they were married. For someone not thought of as pretty, she must have possessed some sparkling conversation. Newspapers would say he was happy in his first marriage, and he was, quote, a lonely, hard-working, susceptible widower, who was, quote, slow of thought, passive in temper, and adequate of action, end quote. I'm, I'm not really sure if those comments were supposed to be positive or negative. At the wedding of Frank and Tilly, her cousin Rose had decided to disrupt the pleasantries with a few derogatory comments. Tilly took great offense, but after a few days, she came to her senses and decided to reconcile with her cousin Rose. Family is family, after all. So she began visiting her cousin more frequently, bringing gifts and homemade candies. Sad, poor Rose passed away not long after the two cousins had seemed like they had just become the best of friends. Poor Tilly. With this new marriage, Tilly was able to leave her job at the factory and return to the position of stay-at-home loving wife. She could finally get back to the thing she loved most, killing. <coughs> I meant, <coughs> I meant cooking. <coughs> cooking. Sorry. 
I, uh, I had a little something caught in my throat. <laughs> they fell into a routine where Frank would leave for work around 6 a.m. till he would have guests over, sometimes a relative, sometimes a love affair, and then her husband would return home for a delicious home-cooked meal. Eventually, a worker that dug graves in the cemetery that was next door would begin to tell others of her sordid affairs until she had to put newspaper on the windows to keep his gossiping to a minimum. And poor Frank was none the wiser. According to witnesses who saw this couple together, there was not much love to be found here. She was short-tempered and would mock him at any given opportunity. I'm not really sure where his six children were, but he chose to stay. He would not leave her. He was aware of her, quote-unquote, powers to discern his future, and she didn't hesitate to tell him that he was going to die sooner rather than later. She would tease him as he left for work, saying, quote, it won't be long now, or on other days she would say, quote, don't worry about it, you'll be dying soon, end quote. She would joke with her neighbors that he didn't have much time left, he'd be dying soon, and he would go to work put in a hard day's labor, and come home to a hearty meal from his wife. (laughs) She's such the jokester. At this point, she had already predicted the deaths of a few neighbors in the area, so people took her at her word. I imagine they found it shocking how she could take the upcoming death of her husband so lightly, but then again, by now, she'd had some practice. She even teased him about finding a good solid coffin on sale in the newspaper's advertisements. It's all fun and games until she forked out the $30 to bring it home. She tried to have her landlady, Martha Weselek, store the coffin in her home so as not to upset her husband, and she flatly refused. On top of that, she threatened to throw them both and the coffin out into the street. The next moment would send chills down her spine when Tilly leaned in and spoke real soft, saying, My man, he only got two inches left to live, but you, she paused, you only got eight inches to live. Sure enough, Frank became ill. He was taken to his bed in early April. One afternoon, when Frank was pale skinned and in terrible pain, The landlady came to check on him and saw that Tilly would sit at his bedside in her morning attire. She asked if her behavior might be a bit premature. After all, Frank might still be able to recover. She said she had already seen his death. Its date is already marked. He would be described as, quote, His face was swollen, the color of chalk. Each breath he drew racked his emaciated body with the utmost unendurable pain. She stayed dutifully by his bedside, quietly crocheting a black hat that she would wear to the funeral. Tilly refused any neighbor's intervention or medical assistance. His time was inevitable, she would say. Oddly enough, on the 25th of April, just as she predicted, Frank would draw his last breath. Bronchial pneumonia. Life insurance, $675. All alone once more, she must have been consumed with grief. Before the sun set on the same day, and as Frank's body lay unmoving in his bed, his neighbors could hear his wife shriek, 
quote, You devil, you won't get up any more. And then the Victrola came on. The volume turned all the way up. Jazz music and heavy dancing footsteps filtered through the thin walls of the apartment complex. We all grieve in our own way. According to historical Italian documents, patronage was not an option. It was the key to one's social status. Quote, A career and social mobility were impossible apart from being involved in a network of patronage relationships. Notability and credibility went hand in hand. End quote. We may never have heard of Galileo, Michelangelo, or Shakespeare's contributions to science and art if it were not for patrons to allow them not only to create and discover, but to bring them and their work to the attention of others. Those who patroned for creatives not only monetary support, they also helped to introduce them to a wider audience, increasing the respectability for both the patron and the creative. It's true today we trust those who recommend something more than we may find on our own. Now, I would hate for your notability and credibility to go static. I would highly recommend going over to patreon.com to jump into the Bag of Bones podcast Patreon group. Inside, you can choose from five levels of participation, all increasing with a lovely array of gifts to show my appreciation. And in true historic Patreon practices, I'd be most humbled if you would introduce the podcast to your network of relationships. So quickly, before you forget, put this episode on pause and head on over to Patreon.com to raise your social status for as little as $2 a month. Allow me to thank you in advance for joining us over at Patreon.com, and I look forward to sending off your welcome kit. Thanks for continuing a beautiful, historical tradition honoring both patrons and creatives by allowing our work to continue into the future. I've heard it said that the best place to find love is at the funeral of your dead husband. Tilly must have heard this statistic as well because it was here that she laid eyes on contestant number four. Hello, Joseph Klimek. Frank and Joseph had been friends and it is believed that Joseph had come by to his home while Frank was sick to pay his respects. He thought Tilly to be caring and compassionate refusing to leave her side while he fought for his life. (laughs) Joseph was 51 years old and had been widowed and divorced already. He was considered a quiet gentleman, and those around him believed he would be a good match. He didn't need a marriage broker to tell him that Tilly was a fine cook and a homemaker. He'd seen with his own eyes how tender she was and how she kept a clean house, and, bonus, she could obviously crochet. July 30th, 1921, the happy couple were wed. Rumor has it that she actually liked this one, as in, maybe he could be the one she could grow old with and love wholeheartedly. Joseph Klimek was a man of means, and he moved his bride into a home at what is now Thomas Street in Chicago. As a testament to her affection, she burned all of her old letters and photos of previous paramours and husbands, and placed a portrait of her new husband in a place of prominence in their home on the fireplace. 
she began to settle into her new home, finally feeling, quote-unquote, at home. Well, that didn't last long. Apparently, the newest Joseph in her line of Josephs hadn't been completely honest with her. Not that I'm saying she was, but we can kind of take that for granted. Anyhow, after she had moved into the house and had the house arranged as she liked, Joseph introduced her to his two big dogs. She was livid. In her world, dogs did not enter the home. They were kept outside at all times. The arguments ensued, but it was a waste of breath, and soon Tilly said nothing more on the matter. She had foreseen the death of both dogs. It was just a matter of time. It was also discovered that her new husband was rather fond of a bit of moonshine, perhaps too much for her liking of a husband, and when he had been imbibing a bit too often, he was also prone to seek out other female companionship. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that soon after these traits were discovered, her spidey senses went off, and soon, oh so sadly, her new husband seemed to be on the docket of death. Before long, Joseph was unable to keep his food down. Blotchy red patches began to appear on his skin. He would complain of tingling in his fingers and toes. She would warn him of drinking too much of that dreadful liquor. Joseph's brother would stop by and see him in this state and tell him that he should go see a doctor. Tilly would interject and say that there was nothing wrong with him other than that he drinks too much. Joseph's brother did not let up. He suspected foul play after the death of the dogs and called the doctor to his brother's home. Dr. Peter T. Burns would do two home visits and decided that Joseph was suffering from arsenic poisoning. The doctor called for an ambulance to take Joseph to the hospital for further testing. When the presence of arsenic was found, Klimek's brother notified the police. When the ambulance was packing Joseph on the stretcher to be removed from the house, he alleges that she leaned over and whispered in his ear, quote, You're all but dead anyway, end quote. Officer Willard K. Malone would draw the short straw in having to arrest Mrs. Klimek. She was having none of it. It was reported that she fought and refused to be taken away from her home. Several police officers had to get involved with restraining her and cramming her into the police vehicle. Malone would later claim that the suspect would wag her finger at him and yell, quote, The next person I'm going to make dinner for is you. You made all my trouble. End quote. Right out of the gate, this case was going to be interesting. During her first round of questioning with the state prosecutor Edward Lyons, Tilly would throw her best friend and cousin right under the bus. She'd say her cousin Nellie had given her white powder to put on her husband's food. She told him that she was tired of her husband fooling around on her, and Nellie promised it would help keep him at home. Upon this information, the police went immediately to pick up Mrs. Nellie Kulik. The San Pedro news pilot would write, quote, State Prosecutor Edward Lyons said that Mrs. Klimek confessed that Mrs. Kulik came to her and said, Why don't you get a divorce from Joseph? You are not getting along so very well. 
I will get rid of him some other way, Mrs. Klimek admitted replying, Lyons said. Then, Lyons said, Mrs. Klimek admitted placing rat poison on her husband's meat when he was in a stupor from drinking, end quote. From this moment on, the two women would blame the other for the predicament they found themselves in. But then, a mysterious letter arrived. The letter said, quote, Have the body of a Mr. Sturmer, who died some years back, exhumed, and you will see that he was poisoned, end quote. The whole police department was in a tizzy, but no one was going to start digging people up just from some old letter. With more finger-pointing, Tilly's son, Joseph Jr., from her first marriage, was brought in for questioning. Joe had remained loyal to his mother throughout everything and was in contact with her throughout the parade of husbands that came and went. But Joe fell under suspicion because he worked at an electrotyping plant, which produces engraved metal plates, metal sculptures, and other forms of art. Hang with me. It took me a minute to figure out the connection, too. Most of the time, lead poisoning is associated with electrotyping, which is what threw me. But apparently, they use arsenic in the process to break down the metals. The police then stretched this tiny piece of information that he must be supplying his mother with massive amounts of arsenic to do her dirty work. Joe Jr. was eventually released with no charges filed against him. When Officer Malone searched the homes of Tilly and Nellie, he discovered the yellow box called Rough on Rats, located at both households. Side note, this Rough on Rats product would have probably been found in most households at the time. In fact, by 1900, Rough on Rats had become the most visible rat poison thanks to the massive marketing abilities of its creator, Ephraim S. Wells. It began appearing in the advertisements around the 1880s to assist wives to get rid of vermin. Now, that could mean lots of things depending on the day. Just saying. Its main ingredients are coal soot and arsenic. Funny story. Coal soot had to be added because the white powder was too easily mistaken for salt, sugar, and flour. So yeah. On his mother's behalf, Joe Jr. claimed that that particular box had been left there by a previous tenant. During the questioning, Tilly insisted on speaking with her husband. It's believed they hoped that in seeing her husband in such pain and suffering, she would be overwhelmed with guilt and confess to everything. To their surprise, Tilly's behavior could not have been even guessed. Of course, you, my lovely audience, will not be surprised. No remorse, no empathy, no emotion, save perhaps contempt. A bit of a smirk spread across her face as she saw her husband lying in the hospital bed. She came close to him and kissed him on his forehead. Joseph came unglued and began screaming at his wife. He yelled and berated her, denouncing his marriage to her and thanking God that she had been found out. Calmly and coolly, she said, quote, Joe. I don't think they're treating you right here. You should come home with me, end quote. Joseph was, of course, incensed by her comments and was preparing to go into another course of insults, but began a coughing fit instead. The officer said, 
Tilly laughed, not like an evil guffaw, but amused. When he called a nurse for a glass of water, she offered the nurse a piece of advice. She said, quote, If he makes too much trouble for you, take a two by four and hit him over the head with it. End quote. That was their cue. They escorted Mrs. Klimek away from her husband's room. She was taken back to her cell, and the investigation continued. The Chicago Tribune of Illinois on November 11, 1922, would write, quote, The most amazing poison death plot in recent criminal history, involving nearly a score of wives whose circumstances is being probed tonight by the local authorities. An arsenic murder trust, through which wives obtained large sums of money by serving poison dinners to their husbands and other relatives, has been revealed by William P. McLaughlin, assistant state attorney who is in charge of the investigation. Two women, Mrs. Tilly Klimek and Mrs. Nellie Sturmer Kulik, are already under arrest. All of the other women connected with the investigations are said to be residents of the same settlement in which these women lived. The evidence at hand warrants a thorough investigation of what appears to be a gigantic poisoning conspiracy, McLaughlin declared. I am convinced that this will turn out to be the most amazing death plot in recent criminal history, he concluded. End quote. Riverside Daily Press in Chicago on October 27, 1922, added, quote, Police today plan to exhume the bodies of four ex-husbands of Mrs. Tilly Klimek following the report of physicians that Joseph Klimek, her fourth husband, was dangerously ill from arsenic poisoning. End quote. <laughs> so the bodies were dug up all over the place and tested for arsenic levels. And every last one of them turned up positive. But it didn't stop there. Suddenly, people were coming out of the woodwork, pointing fingers at both the women for running a full-fledged murder ring. Friends and family came forward with claims of poisoning. You know, they all knew Tilly wasn't really a mystic. They just knew it. Soon, other women's names were being added to the list of possibly murdering people with arsenic. Twenty-eight women were arrested for being part of the Arsenic Murder Trust. And then, on the other side of things, people were coming to the police claiming to be a possible poisoned victim. Neighbors who had eaten dinner with them, accepted candy from them, drank her homemade moonshine, had been under their care. They were all demanding to be tested for arsenic poisoning. The tests started coming back in. Various amounts of arsenic were found in each of the victims, enough to be the cause of their death. The coroner said that Tilly's first husband had enough poison in his system to kill four men. When Nellie Kulik's first husband, her beloved Albert, was tested, he had more than enough poison to kill several healthy men in his system. Nellie's daughter had come to the police claiming that her daughter, Nellie's granddaughter, was in Nellie's care when she had a cold and ended up dying from it. Mm, nope, it was arsenic. They didn't bother exhuming Nellie's twins that had died a few months after their birth. They didn't want to know, but assumed the worst. Evidence and witnesses came from every direction once the truth came out. Neighbors and family would later confess that they were afraid of the Septuha, afraid she would cast a spell over them. 
Even the local butcher and iceman were afraid of her power that they would give her the finest cuts of meat at a fraction of the cost and the first delivery of ice so it wouldn't be too melted. People continued to line up to be tested for arsenic poisoning. So, before we move on to the trial, I'm sure you're wondering, how did she keep getting away with it? She didn't change states. She didn't change her M.O. She didn't distance herself from those who could put the pieces together if they just looked. And she constantly volunteered information. (laughs) Here's the thing. During that time, sanitation was not at its finest, and personal cleanliness had not really been linked to the spreading of diseases yet especially in the poorer communities. There was a high death rate in this period of history anyway. From the book The Premonition Poisoner by Charlize Ellis wrote, quote, During the years that Tilly was actively killing, Chicago and the surrounding areas faced three almost consecutive epidemics. Cholera, followed by tuberculosis, and finally influenza, which ran rampant during this time, and with so many people dying of various elements, it was often difficult to distinguish the manner of death for each individual. End quote. Side note, in 1928 alone, more than $110 million life insurance policies were paid out in death claims to over 650,000 people, mostly in part thanks to the Spanish influenza pandemic or other things that resembled those symptoms. Side note to that side note, she had taken out two insurance policies on her current husband and was actually angry when she found out she was not going to get the money from the death of her last husband, Frank. Okay, back to the timeline. The Pine Bluff Daily, all the way from Arkansas, would write, quote, Two women are tried for system of murder plots. Chicago, March 6, 1923. Mrs. Tilly Klimek and Mrs. Nellie Kulik charged with participating in a murder conspiracy to dispose of husbands and other relatives by poison were placed on trial today. They are charged with the murder of Mrs. Klimek's third husband. Frank Kupsik died on April 20, 1921, of poisoning, according to the coroner's chemist, and a thorough investigation last summer resulted in the exhumation of the bodies of several relatives as well as former husbands of the women were exhumed. In some of the cases, evidences of poisoning were found, but not all of the cases under inquiry. It was the theory of the state's attorney investigations that the women profited by insurance of property left by their deceased husbands and that there was a well-organized conspiracy to put the husbands and others out of the way, End quote. And so, just for a bit of background, still at this time in the Midwest, the juries were made up of 12 men chosen to decide the fate of the defendant. I'm sure you wouldn't be surprised to discover that Tilly and Nellie were not the first two women to be accused of killing their husbands with poison. Arsenic was often referred to as the quote-unquote inheritance powder. In fact, in just a window of a few years surrounding this crime, over 20 other women were set free and only four had been found guilty and sent to jail. However, 
it wasn't uncommon that a pretty defendant might have a better chance than women who were quote unquote without guile or the aid of a hairdresser, manicure, modiste, or diary. They carry no vanity box, rouge, or lipstick, end quote, according to the Chicago Tribune. Tilly was apparently quite the entertaining defendant. Instead of putting her on trial for the attempted murder of her then-husband, Joseph Klimek, they decided instead to put her on trial for only one of her past victims, Frank Kupsik. Murder was far more serious crime, and Frank had the highest levels of arsenic in his body, showing that it had been a slow and malicious crime. They hoped that this would present a better case to get a solid conviction. They were going after the death penalty. No female had yet been hanged in the state of Illinois. The state prosecutor, William F. McLaughlin, wanted to change all that. Tilly Klimek wore the hat she made for her husband's funeral and was calm and chatty during the events. She didn't hesitate to laugh out loud as both members of the law teams butchered the Polish names, much like myself. She would be remembered by cracking morbid, sarcastic jokes, much like myself, and generally seemed to be entertained by it all, as if it were an interactive theater event. Journalist Genevieve Forbes would report regularly on the events happening at the trial. She was not kind in the portrayal of Tilly Klimek. She would write that Tilly was, quote, unmoved and unshaken, and that she was, quote, bored and confused by legal phraseology during the trial, and also, quote, bewildered by technical references, end quote. There were so many witness testimonies. Neighbors, family, doctors, insurance agents. Her only surviving husband, Joseph, even took the stand. And through it all, she remained stoic, seemingly unbothered by the day's events. Her husband would say on the stand, quote, Suddenly I found I could no longer smoke. Tobacco made me sick. Then I noticed that the soup and the coffee tasted funny, end quote. He would go on trying to figure out what was happening to him, but not thinking anything malicious until, quote, I kept working despite increasing pains. Gradually, my legs became numb and my arms and hands, end quote. Her defense lawyer asked about her disposition, and he would say, quote, She never raised her voice or expressed anger. She gadded about a lot in daytime, but she was always home on time with supper on the table, end quote. He would also mention, quote, she crocheted fine bedsheets, end quote. Crocheted bedsheets. I am curious. Many of the witnesses would bring up her predicting people's and animals' deaths. I mean, if that doesn't prove criminal intent beyond a reasonable doubt. Tilly took the stand, and she was cross-examined for over three hours. During her initial questioning, she did admit to the killings, but later retracted it, denying it completely. She would stand firm as she said, quote, They died the same as other people. I am not responsible for that. I could not help it if they wanted to die. End quote. McLaughlin gave a powerful closing statement saying in part, quote, This defendant is like any other woman in this town. She thinks she can get away with it. 
There are a lot of these women who are awaiting your verdict in this case. I feel the death penalty should be inflicted, and I mean it. He didn't mind using Tilly as an example to show the other would be husband poisoners what would become of them. Presiding Judge Marcus Cavanaugh also stated, quote, I venture to say that there are more husbands poisoned in this community than the police or authorities realize. End quote. The trial came to completion, and now all they could do was wait for the jury to return with a verdict. Prosecutor McLaughlin believed he would get the death penalty. Tilly's calm, cool, unemotional demeanor played right into his case. She was a cold-hearted killer. It took 22 hours and five rounds of voting before everyone was called back to the courtroom. Tilly Klimek was guilty. Her sentence, life in prison. It was quite a letdown for the prosecution, even worse for the media. They had been so sure these two, Nellie and Tilly, would be the first women to hang in the state of Illinois. Tilly Klimek is the first woman to be sentenced to life in prison, so... I mean, it wasn't a total loss. After hearing the verdict, Prosecutor McLaughlin gave a statement to the awaiting press. Quote, This will put a pausing hand on the hands of those fiends who in the future may think of sprinkling poison on their husband's food. End quote. (laughs) Oh, but he was oh so very wrong. The Chicago Tribune reporter Genevieve Forbes would write, Quote, was the fact that she was the first woman in Cook County to get a life sentence without a chance of parole due to the fact that she was a fat, squat, peasant-looking woman who looked 55 instead of 45 years of age? With her dull brown hair, there was no dashing smile that would get her out of her sentence. Even the defense attorneys who understood all too well the power of charming women whispered, quote, She hasn't got a chance to beat it. End quote. After her sentencing, she was escorted back to her cell for the evening meal. As the women rushed to their cell walls to hear of the outcome, she sought out the face of her cousin, Nellie. In Polish, she told her that she was found guilty, then said, Ma Kulik? Oh, they're going to hang you today. The guards yanked her forward, leaving poor Nellie to scream in terror. In actuality, Nellie and Tilly only had to spend one year in prison together while Nellie's trial was being prepared. Stories say that Tilly was extremely cruel to her cousin. She would taunt her, saying the jury was going to hang her for killing her husband and children. Nellie was put on trial for the death of her husband, feeling that was the strongest case without having to dig up other graves. Her son, John, would later testify that he was sure his mother was trying to poison him. And Lillian, the daughter that stayed with Tilly, suffered with a weak heart due to arsenic poisoning over a long period of time. Forbes from the Chicago Tribune would write, quote, Nellie's intonation, her gestures are humble, the attitude of a peasant, end quote. However, after hearing the advice, Nellie Kulik's trial ended in a hung jury followed by an acquittal. She was set free. With this news, it was truly the only time Tilly made any kind of emotional response. She was shocked and furious that Nellie got to go home. 
Tilly's parents would come to the courtroom every day and watch the trial unfold, even though they didn't understand all of it. They believed in their heart that their daughter was innocent. She told them she was innocent, and they believed her. From the book The Premonition Poisoner by Charlize Ellis, quote, These people who had fled from tyranny in their motherland to a place that held the promise of freedom and endless possibility only have to watch their daughter imprisoned for the crime of murder, their dreams for her stolen by her own greed, end quote. After only 13 years in Illinois' state penitentiary in Joliet, Tilly died at the age of 59 on November 20th, 1936. And thus concludes the story of the Bluebeard of Chicago. I am, as always, grateful to you for joining me here today. If you're looking for more of the sarcastic, somewhat dark sense of humor that happens around here, you should join us over on the Facebook or the Instagram pages for more and I'll be sure to meet you there. And if you are enjoying these stories and have gleaned any knowledge or entertainment from them, would you please consider leaving a five-star rating and review at the podcast platform of your preference? It is a big help in finding others who enjoy this specific type of podcast. You know who you are, and I'm glad you found me. And if you want more stories and community and conversation, perhaps you might consider joining us over at patreon.com. There you can listen to our International Bones episodes, plus get free stuff when you join at any level and discounts on some awesome merch, plus more stuff. It will help to ensure that I'm able to continue bringing you these really great stories every month. I would love to have you join us. The link is in the show notes, but it's super easy. Just go to patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com and choose from any of the five levels of support. I promise you that your participation would mean the world to me. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next time then. Bag of Bones is created, researched, written, and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret Edited by Katie Bougere Caldwell. Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. To become a patron, please look up Bag of Bones Podcast at patreon.com for exclusive content and merch. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises.